Welcome back to Ghostly Talk. This is Scott L. This is Amber. And we had a super fun show tonight. With it was a super fun show. Super fun with Josh Cutchin. Did I say that right? Cutchin. Thank you. Not Cutchin. I know. Not Cushin. That's how I wanted to say. That's why I asked him. I was like, is it Cushin? Cushin. 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 I'm just, just well, Cushin. <laughs> uh, anyway. Cushin. Um, I know we like to have, uh, we love to talk about high strangeness on the show, especially on episodes where we've had Steve Ward on. Oh, yeah. And, Hi, Steve. Um, Joshua was a Steve Ward recommendation. I was aware of Joshua's books yeah. and his research into the Bigfoot phenomenon, yeah. but Steve was like, no. I've had him on my show. You must have him on yours. You and need, I was like, you need to have Joshua Gushin. Oh, why did you? Gushin. Oh, so Steve has Steve a, has a French, French accent. accent now. Okay. Whoa. Okay. You need to. We'll let Steve know that he has Is, that. Did I actually do that right? Because I, I that you, sounded a little better than your normal accent, which just turns into some my fr- my French dumpster fire of accents. My my, I, See now you're no, it's going in the dumpster fire. You, you need to have Joshua Gushin. Stop. Okay, Stop. I'm sorry. All right, go ahead. So. Holding in my hands are Where the Footprints End, Volumes 1 and 2. They are big books. They are beautifully illustrated they by are Timothy beautiful. Renner. They are gorgeous. And uh, we're going to talk about Bigfoot tonight and high strangeness. And, and All not just, kinds of not stuff. Not just Bigfoot in the sense that he's a hairy, he, she is a hairy hominid walking around, doing its thing, hiding in the woods somewhere. But that there are a lot of cross correlations between Bigfoot phenomena and poltergeist phenomena and ghosts and hauntings yeah. and UFOs mm-hmm. and strange lights and orbs and smells and all kinds of stuff that. And the mind. Yeah. The mind. Uh, so it, it, you're going to really like this show. But I do want to give one little weird piece of news. This tripped me out when you told me this. So I was talking to my friend, and she is an Instagram addict. Yes, she is. So I would assume that Instagram's algorithm is perfectly adjusted to her for Mm -hmm. the amount of time she uses it. Mm -hmm. But she gets this random video a week ago about the dangers of hair, like human hair, getting wrapped around your baby's toes and possibly causing it to have to get cut off because of circulation issues. And you think about how tight, if you have a hair tie, how tight hair gets woven around a hair. It's like woven into the fabric of the hair tie. So she goes and sees a friend. Thought it, She did think it was weird. Like, why did this video show up on my feed? This is strange. She goes and sees her friend who just had twins. And she mm-hmm. happens to be looking down at the baby's toes. Mm-hmm. And the one toe looks very red and agitated. Yep. And as she's looking at it, She thinks back to this random Instagram video that she saw about the dangers of hair being wrapped around your infant's toes. Mm -hmm. She said something to the parents. "Uh, Hey, have you guys noticed uh, her toe? Like, it's really red and weird. And they, of course, were like, oh, my God, we look like bad parents. But they didn't see it. And Mm -hmm. they look. And sure enough, there is one of the mother's hairs wrapped tightly around the little baby's toe. I mean, little baby toes are like. Tiny little they're things. Tiny little. Tiny. Nothing, yeah. And they they're were really, the so. Bone, the bone's still soft. Man. They were so worried that when they unwrapped the hair, they still didn't think the toe bounced back fast enough that they rushed the child to the Helen DeVos Children's uh, Emergency Room. Had a happy ending though, right? I, we didn't hear about any baby toes falling off, so I think it did. But yeah. how weird and synchronistic and is that? 
that Julie sees that on her Instagram, yeah. even notes to herself, how strange that this video, why would I care about this? Mm-hmm. Okay. And one week later is confronted with that very same scenario, which the parents were completely unaware of and who knows, might not have noticed anything and woken up to their child having a black toe. Yeah. Weird. That is very strange. If that's not some type of divine intervention. Well, is that Skynet? You know, is that Skynet actually starting to, you know... Like the machines did that? Well, is that, is <laughs> that true AI? Like, you know, AI, it's predicting stuff. Oh, like, I know, see what you mean. It, it, oh, it's, that's, the whole, that's weird. Is that AI? Like, oh, AI is a week ahead of us? We're a week, yeah, they're a week ahead of us, and they're, and they're able... Which, that was obviously a very positive thing. It was. If it all worked out that way, I'd be totally cool with that thing. We know how it's going to go. Well, I need to be a week ahead so I can win the lottery. Don't, no more accents. Okay, I'm sorry, but something like that. You know, it'll be some nefarious <laughs> I don't know, but thing. I just thought I had to share that with the listeners of the show because I knew they would appreciate it. That was crazy. It. That was crazy. Because yeah, I, yeah. I thought that was too strange. So mm-hmm. Tell um, us about Josh. Anyway, Josh, Josh, where is my bio? Josh, Joshua Cutchen is the author of four books. 2015's A Trojan Feast, The Food and Drink Offerings of Aliens, Fairies, and Sasquatch. 2016's The Brimstone Deceit. An in-depth examination of supernatural sense, otherworldly odors, and monstrous miasmas. 2018's Thieves in the Night, a brief history of supernatural child abductions, and 2020's Where the Footprints End, High Strangeness and the Bigfoot Phenomena, Volumes 1 and 2 with Timothy Renner, which we talked in length about tonight. Joshua is also a contributor to Robbie Graham's 2017 collection of ufological essays, UFOs, Reframing the Debate, as well as David Weatherly's 2018 Sasquatch collection, Woodnox, Volume 3. Kutchen has been featured on the hit History Channel television show, Ancient Aliens. We should have asked him about that. That show yeah. is like the Simpsons of the paranormal shows now. Yeah. It's seriously been on like... Forever. 20 years now or something. Yeah, forever. It's... it's so I can't believe, but you know what? I kind of, if that one's on, I don't hate it. I don't hate it. I like Giorgio. I like his hair. <laughs> so he's been on TV. He's been on podcasts. He was nice enough to join us on our podcast tonight. Yeah. So enjoy our show with Joshua Cutchin. talk about a topic that i think is sorely neglected in the paranormal and that is our dear friend bigfoot bigfoot i still feel is like the ugly stepsister of the paranormal and gets sort of ridiculed not invited to the party told to stay home um no one believes in her him and it just sort of is bigfoot's there i just realized something yeah gender fluidity with Bigfoot? And the Sasquatch. Why not? Because I think we've always referred to him. the Sasquatch as a him. He, Bigfoot. He, Bigfoot. It's a very masculine name, Bigfoot. Right. Um, wow, I never thought about that. Go ahead. Sorry. Well, I mean, I just... if, the, if, it's, if it's a 
population of undiscovered hominids, you would think it would need the traditional way of mating and it would need male and female to carry on. So Okay. Yeah. All right. I'm just (laughs) that was just streaming consciousness. It just came out of You don't really think about female Bigfoots often. No, I don't. It's not your fantasy. No, there's that one. There's that one Instagram though. Speaking of social media, there's that one Instagram page I think I showed you with like that dancing female Bigfoot though, with like big red lips and stuff. Oh yeah, yeah. I think I showed it to you, and you're like, yeah. that's, that's disturbing. Leave me alone. Go away. <laughs> you wait. Sorry. Go ahead, Amber. So tonight we have on the amazing researcher and author uh, Joshua Cutchen. Cutchen. Said the name right? (laughs) And he has written a couple books, actually a lot of books, but the two I'm holding in my hand are Where the Footprints End, Volume 1 and Volume 2, and it's High Strangeness and the Bigfoot Phenomenon. Mm -hmm. Welcome to the show. I'm I'm happy to be here. Uh, I got to ask, is it one of the situations where, like, you're Bigfoot's friend, but Bigfoot isn't your friend? You know what I mean? Like... (laughs) Like when you have your best friend, you're like, you're my best friend. They're like, yeah, you're swell. (laughs) (laughs) I will say I've seen some hilarious Bigfoot stuff on social media. And there's one called Sasquatch. Like, and the emphasis on the sass. And it's making it's making fun of someone wearing a 1997 like O'Neill shirt or something. I don't know. It's like the only time I've ever reshared a Bigfoot picture on Instagram. So that's like the one time I post every year. (laughs) <laughs> but Bigfoot Bigfoot gets ignored, and I think it's a topic worth um, researching, looking into. Yeah. There's a lot of fascinating parts to the whole phenomena. I know in uh, your book you mentioned that the goal of the book is to take a serious look at cases too bizarre, too fantastic, too weird for the cryptozoological establishment – Bigfoot sightings are riddled with such accounts, such as tales of disappearing entities, strange lights, three-toed tracks, trackways simply ending in snow, mimicry, shape-shifting, bulletproof wild men, and so much more. Oh, my God. So there is endless stuff to talk about with Bigfoot, and it can get downright creepy. I think sometimes more creepy than ghost stuff, which a lot of us are are a little numb to because we've been involved with ghost stuff for so long. Uh, So I do have to ask, though, Josh, how did you come to start studying this topic and write so extensively on it? Well, this topic in particular was the brainchild of my co-author, Timothy Renner. Um, he, he approached me. We had known each other through some mutual podcasts and I developed a little bit of a relationship. And he said, you know, how about we do like the guide to Bigfoot and high strangeness? Because I guess, you know, all of us start off in like the really orthodox camps and some of us remain there and there's nothing wrong with that. But um, I think that the crowd that I tend to run with tend to reject a lot of those orthodox views. So things like UFOs being extraterrestrials, um, things like Bigfoot being a relic hominid, um, even sometimes things like, you know, ghosts being dead people. (laughs) We tend to, we tend to get a little bit more weirder, a little bit more Jungian, a little bit more Terrence McKenna as it were. Um, So, uh, you know, I've, I've always been fascinated by like that sort of fringe outside interpretation of Bigfoot because, you know, I've spoken to too many people and, had a handful of, you know, other anomalous experiences in my life. I, I don't deny the existence of these phenomena, but I, I do question um, our interpretations of it. And also, at the same time, I'm very sympathetic to a lot of the skeptical arguments, especially regarding something like Bigfoot, you know. We don't have a body. Um, every hair sample, you know, comes up, uh, you know, very ambiguous when yeah. it's analyzed through DNA or whatever. Um, and... Uh, 
just wondering if there's a way to straddle that reality of the phenomena, which oftentimes is very good. I say that Bigfoot has like, you know, uh, other, other phenomena have Bigfoot envy, right? Because Bigfoot has this great physical evidence accompanying it. Um, but how do we balance that with the fact that there are some very reasonable skeptical arguments? And does that in turn speak to Bigfoot being something much stranger than just a large primate? So I think Tim was fascinated by that. And I was fascinated by that. And uh, we started compiling uh, topics and we, you know, broke it down into each of our specialties. Um, I pushed some things on him that he didn't, that I didn't want to do and vice versa. <laughs> and uh, we wound up with just this, you know, doorstop of a book. And we said, well, we got to, we got to pull a King Solomon and split this thing in half, you know? So um, we just sort of kind of found some vague way to sort of separate the two. Well, you know, so volume one is folklore and volume two is evidence, although there's plenty of evidence, evidence in volume one and plenty of folklore in volume two, but that was sort of the rough split that we wound up with. And uh, I think it's, it's pretty thorough. It's, it's, it's um, comprehensive, but not exhaustive, I think is probably the, the best way to put it. Um, Cause we cover the gamut of just weird stuff. And some of the stories are really strange and some of them um, are, like you said, really frightening. Um, you know, I, I think that, <laughs> you know, if Bigfoot is a large primate, that's scary enough. Yeah. But then you add in this like ability to possess you or, <laughs> or steal your soul or any yeah. number of these strange things. And it just gets, it seems like you're touching something that, that really shatters your reality. And I know you said it's no comparison, but I think it is like a much needed thing that had to happen. It is very much like what, uh, what you guys did is very much like what Valet, uh, Jacques did, uh, Jacques yeah, yeah, with a passport to Magonia for UFOs. I think you, you guys really, this needed to be done for the Bigfoot world and for this type of type of research. So, yes. Well, you know, as as a as a, a student of of Jacques, um, I, uh, I will say that I'm not fit to tie his shoes, but um, <laughs> I, I appreciate the comparison. And when you sort of stand back from it, it does sort of have that. Uh, Valayan shape to it, the sort of psychosocial shape and saying, you know, okay, well, it might be this, it might be the established narrative, but let's also look at how this phenomena, especially in volume one overlaps with things like, you know, uh, witch folklore and fairy folklore yeah. and ghost folklore. And then the, the whole women in white chapter with which uh, yeah. Timothy blew apart, which is just blew my mind when I read it. So yeah, I, I think it, I think it needed to be written. Um, it's one of those books where it kind of felt like it was out of our hands in a sense that it was just time for this to be written. And we were lucky enough to be the ones who do it. I'm very grateful for that. I feel like it's become more popular too with the, uh, with David Politis. And his missing four one one stuff and the and the are you familiar with his work? Oh, absolutely. Okay. Yeah. Uh, the with his, I know he doesn't like to say one thing or the other, but Politis got to start. He was like a Bigfoot guy, so I I don't know when I was watching. I know we mentioned this on a few shows back, but when I was watching his movie The Hunters, and he played that clip the from the Sierra. What was it called? The Sierra Sounds. Mm -hmm. Um. Oh my God! By Ron Moorhead, the from the I think it was from the seventies. Those sounds, I, I. That's a good impersonation, you know. And and as goofy as they sound, it still gave me chills because I'm like, yeah, is if that is real? Yeah. Anybody who wants to lose some sleep tonight, give that a listen. Yeah. Um. Yeah, you know the funny thing about the four one one stuff, which I still have a soft spot for. I've I've soured on the genuinely anomalous nature of some of those cases. Um, 
in the years since. But the thing, the interesting thing that I find about it, and there's a lot of it that is anomalous, um, is that it's almost like it almost functions as a paranormal Rorschach test, right? So if you're if you're into secret government experiments and underground bases, you can make it fit that. If you're into Bigfoot, you can yep. mostly make it fit that. Um, you know, me me having a real soft spot for for Western European fairy folklore, I, I tend to see you know, the fingerprints of that all over it. But um, yeah, I, I think that uh, he, I think that he probably started out on the Bigfoot train. And I think that I get the impression that he, well, I, I'll, I'll refrain from saying too much. Maybe we can talk about that off the air, but um, <laughs> I, I get the impression that for various reasons, he's moved off of the Bigfoot train. And, and, you know, I don't think necessarily that Bigfoot in the traditional, you know, cryptozoological big hairy hominid sense was ever really a good fit. Because you had right. the, you know, the, the the issue of inclement weather cropping yep. up, and so are we going to start hypothesizing that Bigfoot can control the weather? That's fine in my model, but that's not fine in the uh, you know the rank and file cryptozoologist's uh, model of, of what Bigfoot might be. Yeah, it was when after I read some of his stuff and watched uh, his movies, I I thought it was like all of a sudden I thought I don't want to hike alone anymore because what if Bigfoot gets me? <laughs> it was the only time like I yeah. legit had a weird fear of thinking about. A, a crazy hominid creature coming to get me for the first time well, ever and, in my life. And there's a storied history of Bigfoot picking off the last people in line, yeah. you know, to the extent that, um, oh. uh, what's the hide behind? I think Tim talks about oh. one of those chapters where, you know, the, the, the adage was don't look behind you because that's when, you know, it would get you. So yeah. <laughs> it's, yeah, the, the idea, it's like the, uh, the weeping angels from Dr. Who. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like just terrified, absolutely terrified. And, and the, the mimicry thing, is really spooky to me because I've read that in some, uh, uh, we're based in the Detroit area, so I do a lot of Michigan research, and some of the monsters that I've researched in Michigan, they talk about it having a goose-like sound or a baby-like sound. And thinking of these things that are, you know, maybe huge and, and could just crush you, and then they make a little baby like, meh, meh, and you, yeah. what, what is terrifying. that? It's what that is. Well, and then you go to look for it because you're like, you hear this innocent sound right. and then just boom. Like, well, and, oh. and you know, there, there have been, <laughs> there have been scientific studies that have been under, under that have, uh, they've taken place that uh, they actually show that you, the human brain is wired in a very specific way to react to infants crying. Like it triggers certain emotions and reflexes and impulses in you. So like what, what better tool for luring someone into the forest? But uh and you know that baby crying thing? Yeah, it shows up all across the Bigfoot stuff. It also shows up, you know, obviously in a lot of ghost stories. But yeah, uh, you know, yeah. it's uh, John Keel remarked that that and the sound of a slamming door were two of the most common things that he heard, even in UFO accounts. Um, so you know, I, I am a big fan of like um, sort of a, a pan paranormal view. I, I think that a lot of these topics overlap more than we are led to believe. And at the very least, if they're not the same phenomena, the Venn diagrams significantly. Um, crossover <laughs> for sure yeah and i think it's important for people which we've stressed on the show a lot over the years to look at all aspects of the paranormal like how we're doing tonight and to not just stay in one camp or the other because they do all intermix and i think that was the, the harmful thing for so long because it's like the crypto kids stayed over at that part of the you know that side of the dance by the punch bowl and the ghost kids were over here and then <laughs> yeah, like everybody else yeah. is the crazy one yeah, right exactly. everybody else is crazy yeah. and and you know i used to think like the uf i used to think like the ghost kids those were the cool kids and then I'm like, oh, the UFO people are weird. And then I got sick of the ghost people and I moved over to the UFO people. And I mean, they're their own breed too, but <laughs> I kind of like like them more because they look at all these different angles and stuff. And then like now that the cryptozoology is sort of moving into these different realms and you're getting better uh, resources like uh, what you and Timothy wrote, I just, 
I don't know. I just like I feel like we're going in a good direction finally in the paranormal. I, I think so. You know, it's it's interesting. Um, you know, for all its faults, ufology has managed to straddle this line between uh, a purely you know, sort of, for lack of a better term, spiritual approach and a, a materialist approach, you know, whereas the ghost people are all into the the spiritual approach and the cryptozoologists, for the most part, are, are very much into the materialist approach. And I think having that sort of um, flexible attitude when approaching this stuff, even if it's, even if it leads you down, you know, a blind alley, you're thinking about things in a different way and you might have some sort of other revelation on the way there. So I, th- I think I'm all about mixing these things up and thinking about them in, in different sorts of ways. And, you know, I, I personally have a, have a, uh, a philosophy that, you know, if it's something political or religious or spiritual or, you know, in this case, you know, <laughs> Fortiana, if there's something that I don't like or that I disagree with or that I can't work into my um, personal, you know, my personal worldview, I like to push on that and and, and try to lean into it and see, you know, if, if, you know, if, uh, if my original stance um, was valid, it should strengthen. And if not, then I'll learn something. So I think that's, I think that's, kind of a guiding ethos in a lot of stuff that I do. I think one of the things, you know, as you guys are talking about this, it just, it, it, and I hate to sound like a broken record, but I'll say it again, and I'm going to keep saying this for as long as we do this stuff. Um, my goal and what I've keyed in on, and we keyed in on this years ago, is, and like Amber, I know I kind of had my silo for, for a while, and then I really wanted to, you know, start studying and experiencing you know for lack of a better term (laughs) experiencing a lot of all this other stuff study ufos study cryptids right and the thing i've learned and i guess the thing that i really am more curious about than anything now is not i i am convinced that this stuff's happening i really am Mm -hmm. i know i i I am I, i have no problem going on the record saying look i've seen a ufo i believe that they're out there no problem at all, right? I even believe that there's something out there, a Sasquatch, a Sasquatch. <laughs> so yeah. There's something out there. I well, believe that. Well, and countries around the world have talked yeah. about, they all have, yeah. they have the Yeti, yeah. they have the, so, all I guess, the other of them. They're all know, there. The broken record part of this is just going to simply for me to be, to say that I'm more curious about how they're related because I believe that all this stuff is related in one way or another. I think there's some, that that to me is the true mystery of all this is how where's the glue? That to me, if I think we find the glue that kind of has all the you know kind of binds all these things together because they're all they share one thing, right? We can't explain them. Mm-hmm. We can't explain what's going on. We have no logical explanation for it. It's all it's all anomalous. And to me, you know, if we find that glue. That'll answer a lot of questions, I think. Well, that and the other shared element that I think a lot of people who are looking at burn marks in the ground or footprints or this or that, the other shared element that a lot of people overlook is the human element. You know, it's it, you know, if if a uh, if a paranormal tree falls in the wood and there's no one around, does it happen? You know, <laughs> <laughs> so 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 there's this shared the shared um, human quality, um, and when you combine that with the intimacy and, and the profundity of some of these encounters, I think that's a big clue as as well for sure. I want to talk about some of the other stuff that you have worked on, and I'm especially interested in talking about smells that are found in the paranormal because. So often when we go into haunted locations or anywhere, people are like, oh, you smell, you know, someone's perfume that their grandma wore or 
the cigar their grandpa smoked or just some or you know i smell sulfur and it's <laughs> demonic yeah. and and there's so and and smell is such a powerful thing with the human experience and triggers so much in our memory like in just a flash and so i'm kind of curious how your research in this came about and what you've come to discover well i i suppose one of the other sort of guiding principles that i have is to take something that people have mentioned a lot but no one has ever really, really dug into you know so you know throughout the literature of parapsychology ufology cryptozoology people will mention smells offhand and they might they might dedicate a paragraph to it right but no yeah. one has ever gone let's let's roll up our sleeves and get into smell in, in a significant way so um my 2016 book the brimstone deceit is uh, to my knowledge the only you know large-scale uh, study of this particular topic and uh I, even though it's called the Brimstone Deceit, which it kind of sounds like a Joel Austin book or something, but <laughs> um, it's it, 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 that, that, that's derived from the fact that most of the smells that I found tended to, you know, veer in the direction of sulfur compounds. But that's by no means um, the only smell that's reported across anomalies. Um, I'd say it's probably a plurality of smells rather than a majority of smells. Um, but uh, yeah, there's this there's this intimacy of smell and the way that it can conjure up um, memories unbidden, emotions unbidden. Um, that I think is really telling. And if the phenomena is somehow operating on a level where it wishes to be perceived or it's somehow trying to convey a message, I think that's an incredible vector that people haven't really looked at. Um, to that end, uh, you know, you sort of have to end up going into like the philosophy of smell and the, you know, the way that you're the physiology of smell. Um, and, uh, you know, there's something special about smell in general, because, you know, it's one thing to be like, oh, you had a hallucination, but, you know, to hallucinate a smell um, is is orders of magnitude rare. I mean, you think about the way that we talk about smells, you know, this doesn't pass the smell test. Something doesn't smell right. The nose knows like there's something objective that's encoded in the way that we speak about smell. And it implies that there really is indeed something there if you can see it and smell it. Um, so yeah, a lot of these compounds are sulfur compounds. Um, sulfur, you know, has this longstanding connection to demons and whatnot. Um, that's a little bit of a, a misnomer I found to my surprise. Um, a lot of the reasons that we associate that smell with demons is because in, especially in the Abrahamic tradition, God uses sulfur as a, a cleansing agent, mm. right? He throws the devil into the lake of fire. And, and to this day, you know, acne medications have sulfur compounds in them and it's a fumigant and it's a, you know, antimicrobial. Um, so that's not quite accurate to say that demons smell stinky. I mean, they might yeah. smell stinky, <laughs> but there's, there's a lot of other stuff that goes into that as well. Um, so yeah, you find that uh, a lot of these have, at least some sort of sulfur compound. And it's a tricky business because a lot of times people will say something is this phenomena actually in olfactory research, they call it the tip of the nose. It's like when something's on the tip of your tongue, but you can't identify it. So it's like the tip of your nose, you can smell it and you know, you've smelled it before, but you can't play, quite place your finger on it. So you have to wade through all these different descriptions. But a lot of the descriptions that people say, you know, gunpowder, rotten eggs, um, flatulence let's put it that way <laughs> um oftentimes they have sulfur compounds sulfur dioxide or hydrogen sulfide or actually a whole array of different uh different compounds because sulfur itself doesn't smell unless it's exposed to heat um but we are super hardwired to detect sulfur in the most minute amounts the huh. example that i like to use is that uh, hydrogen sulfide that rotten egg smell um we are we have a sensitivity to detect that at two uh, at, at half a part per billion 
So to put that in perspective, one ink drop in the back of a semi-tank trailer full of water is twice that concentration. (laughs) So like we are super fine-tuned to uh, to notice smells. And if the phenomena is in complete control of the experience, which it seems to be time and time again, um, they definitely want to be noticed. Like this is, they couldn't have picked a worse smell if they want to go incognito. So that, that opens up a whole array of things. And you've got the idea that these are also smells of entropy. They're tied to death. Um, and then they're also uh, tied in the sort of thesis that I cobbled together um, suspects that perhaps they're actually used to uh, these chemical compounds are used to induce uh, altered states of consciousness, which I think is a really fertile field for people in all sorts of anomalous uh, areas of investigation is the altered states of consciousness model. Um, there's so many similarities between what we would otherwise call drug trips and uh, yeah. a lot of these paranormal encounters. I know with like ayahuasca and on a lot of those DMT people come away experiencing and describing things uh, like weird creatures, UFO type encounters, and they're people that don't even have a previous knowledge of that type of thing. Like they don't study it, study it. Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's 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 almost like it's you know. Well, th- we used to talk about alcohol this way, right? Like that's why it was called spirits. It's like well, you know, you've heard this today. Like like I can't drink tequila. Tequila does things to me. Oh. You know, bourbon, bourbon's fine, but I can't drink. You know. Yeah. So there's this idea that there's this character embedded in some of these different substances, and that to me implies that there's some sort of almost metaphysical imprint at the other end of the telephone. Um, and you're right. I mean, you're absolutely right that uh, people will come back and have never taken dmt and never have uh, have um you know heard about elves or anything like that you know after in that in that altered state of consciousness and they'll come back and they'll all report the same things you know yeah a crystalline dome the sound of buzzing at the beginning of the experience which is also you know a hallmark of some cryptid encounters and a lot of alien abductions and ndes um you know they'll come back and they'll, they'll report the same set of things and it's like okay is this i mean so this is something that i find really fascinating right because when you find someone from uh, when you find someone from Beloit, Wisconsin, who is describing the exact same thing that appears in an ancient text from Babylonia, like that implies that there's something fundamental going on, you know, whether that's an alien abduction or a spirit encounter or an encounter with a wild man or something. And so it really implies one of one of three things. Um, either there's something objectively going on that we have yet to recognize as a society. Uh, number two, that there was a level of, of cross-cultural contamination in the, the distant past um, that we haven't accepted in terms of being a global culture. Or three, perhaps the most mundane but still you know, world-shattering is that there's something to this Jungian idea of a collective unconscious that certain things are baked into our psyche that yeah. we, are just, we just emerge from the womb with. You know? And I, I think any of those is, is fascinating. It really backs the, the materials reductionist into a corner, I think. I often think about that, too, with, like, the collective consciousness, with all these people coming away with very similar experiences, like, what type of memory pool they're dipping into when their minds, like, you know, leave their body and go elsewhere. Um, I I don't think I would I, – I'm, li- I'm scared to try anything psychedelic because I oh, yeah, think I'm, – I'm terrified, too. Yeah. <laughs> so am yeah. I. I, yeah. I don't yeah, – I think I just... I'd see something that I would, couldn't come back from. I would see that alien – looking over the table in fire in the sky in the movie. And that would yeah, be like yeah. with the drill coming into my head. Like I swear my brain would just like make that happen. Well, I think I know. Well, Go ahead. Well, Josh. well no, I was just going to say, I mean, there, there are a lot of, there are a lot of considerations to take into. And that's the reason that I, you know, I'm, I'm sort of, 
I'm, I guess I'm chicken. A lot of my friends are like, oh, you want to see fairies? Well, I can get you fairies. It's just a matter <laughs> of how brave you are. And I'm like, well, you know, there's, there's, you know, I mean, people talk about, you know, the Rick Strassman DMT studies, but they were monitored in a hospital and some, some of them they had to administer because their blood pressure got too high. Yeah. And there's, there are some medical, uh, you know, um, some medical issues that you need to be aware of. And there's also, you know, I, I think my psyche's strong, but I have no real idea. I mean, until I get in the, in the thick of things. Right. Um, so, you know, I don't want to emerge schizophrenic and I can't say that I won't. So, you know, th there's a lot of things that, you know, that, and if you want to go again, down that metaphysical rabbit hole, something that's not really popularized about Rick Strassman studies are that a lot of people had bad luck afterwards. You know, there was, there was incidents of cancer and car trouble and friends having suicide among the research uh, participants. So, so, you know, I can handle something happening, bad happening to me, but something bad happening to a loved one or, you know, just all this other stuff is just a little bit. It's the same reason that I don't take, uh, you know, I don't take a rock from a sacred site. Like I'm all about like seeing a ghost in my house. That sounds neat. I can, I can, I can deal with being terrified. But when you bring other people into the equation, especially, you know, I have two twin uh, toddlers. It's just like, I'm just going to leave that there yeah. for a while at least. Yeah. I think another thing with that too is I know, and I've talked talked to friends about this, and uh, and I again I'm I'm with you guys. I'm th the same way. I'm scared to death of doing anything like that to myself. And one of the main reasons I think, and I think it matter. It's a matter of how your personality is too. And mm -hmm. I've had friends tell me, per, uh, dear friends who have done this several times, and they're like, <clears throat> yeah. Um, maybe not a good idea for you <laughs> yeah yeah exactly um yeah. and and if you're gonna do it we want you to like do it in your backyard and we'll be here to keep an eye on and you we'll put a straight and we'll be sober you. we won't we won't be taking we will not be setting yeah. Yeah. yeah we're gonna like totally keep an eye on you because we think that you'll end up on the roof of the house just screaming at this you know howling at the moon so there's that and i think yeah just i i do also know people and I think we know a lot. We all have people like this. They're crossing through our lives or in our lives that have done it a little too much. And yeah. I think yeah. sometimes, I think you know, with something like that too, you might live, leave a little piece of yourself <laughs> in that world, right? I, I believe oh, that. Right. Abs absolutely. And, you know, it's, I mean, it's, it's the old alchemical narrative, right? You have the dry way and the wet way. And the dry way is a rocket ship to the proverbial moon. You'll get results right away, but it's dangerous. So the wet way. I think that's right. Yeah, the wet way is is slow and methodical, and it'll get you there as well. But it it's also slow and methodical. So yeah, maybe meditation. You know, <laughs> maybe <laughs> meditation. But I, maybe maybe I'll just meditate some. And frankly, I mean, all experiments aside, I think most people that actively take some you know psychedelics and hallucinogens or whatever nowadays, they're not doing this to see fairies. They're doing it, frankly, just to escape. I think, and it's it's. I I look at psychedelics, unfortunately, the same way I look at alcohol or marijuana or whatever it might be. I think it's just another means of escape for some people. I don't even think they even use it for to break through, like we're saying. Oh, well, like, no, just to, there's people out there that do. Oh, I know there, there's people out there that too, but I think the vast more majority, and maybe I could be wrong uh, too. I think it's changing because there's a lot more research being done on the. Well, topic. I know, I know that you know the whole the whole thing of microdosing. People do now. People yep. microdose helping right? anxiety with just tiny little bits. Yeah, and, and, um, and I heard that. Okay. I heard that's really good and you can function like yeah. you're not tripping out. Yeah. You know? I, I think that's also a problem with this sort of cancer we have at the center of our soul as a society, because if you look at this throughout the historical record, you know, in, in indigenous cultures, especially like this was never recreational. 
or very rarely recreational. It's almost always done within a sacred context in terms of exploration, shamanic initiation, that sort of thing too. So mm. I think that like, I think that our culture is just conducive to using these things recreationally. Um, but you know, at the same time, there is a, a very strong set of inquisitive people, but it's, it's just kind of, I, I kind of wind up at the same place that I do with a, with a Ouija board, you know? Um, it's just like, am I playing with, am I treating something lightly that shouldn't be treated very lightly, you know? Well, yeah, and that's the the question. That's the concern I have too. Is like I said before, it is that idea where you may leave a little piece of yourself in that wherever you go, and if you go there too many times, you might leave too much. Mm. Yeah, and, much you, you know, left and, here, you know. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Josh. Well, I was just gonna say it's, it's like the old Timothy. I think it's the Timothy O'Leary thing. It's like once you know, once you get the message, hang up the phone, man. <laughs> like, <laughs> you know. Yeah, um, and that's true. Yeah. It's, it's, and, but you know, but but I think it opens up a lot of interesting avenues because we assume that our reality that we're currently in isn't psychedelic because we're sort of born into it. And mm-hmm. I think it's really interesting to wonder if if a lot of these things that we see are not, you know, if if we whenever we see aliens, because you know, half the time they're as surprised to see us as we are them, right? Especially in <laughs> close encounters of the third kind, maybe not the fourth kind, where they're abducting you. But like, you know, there, these stories where these things look at people and they're surprised that you know that they can be seen are just manifold and uh i kind of wonder if we're not dealing with you know shamans from another dimension or or you know a bunch of uh a bunch of kids on the couch taking the uh the interdimensional version of mushrooms and and winding up in our world yeah but you you say that you know from that perspective and it got me thinking also like um the the life we live right now i look around me and i and i have very well-defined things around me i can name there's a name for everything colors shapes whatever they Mm -hmm. might be and it it's my world i understand the world that i am around me and even if you have a couple you know a few too many beers one night the world is different it's a very different place for a short amount of time and i'm wondering what if what if this idea is that it's flip-flopped maybe we are kind of like living maybe that the real trip is like everyday living and Whatever you take, you know, psychedelics, whatever it might be, you take is what stops you. And what you're experiencing then is what, you know, I'm, I'm just more or less saying, is, is it flip-flopped? It's just something I thought about. Yeah. It's an idea. No, you know? no, yeah, absolutely. They've done studies on the areas of the brain that actually shut off during psilocybin use. You know, the, the prevailing assumption was that parts of the brain activated and that you became overstimulated and you started hallucinating, but actually it looks like certain filters are, are shut off. So it yeah. kind of wonders if we're actually embedded in a greater reality. And then of course you'd start drawing in stuff like dreams and you know, that Jungian idea that we're always dreaming is just sort of an artificial um, boundary that we have with sleep. Um, yeah. I, I think it's, it's, and, and it's interesting because you know, the, the ghost hunters are, they kind of talk about this. The UFO people are all into it. Right. Um, but cryptozoology just does not like to entertain the idea of altered states of consciousness in things like Bigfoot reports. And there is a degree of evidence to suggest that something like that is at play, at least in some encounters. Well, and like, especially that with indigenous cultures believing that Bigfoot creatures are, are like shapeshifters and, right. and, and different things that have always been part of, of a lot of stories uh, going back with different cultures around the world. Um, I have this. I have this suspicion that we. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to. Interrupt. No, no, I was done. Oh, I was just gonna say I have the suspicion that like that we 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 very rarely see the real phenomena, or that when we do, it's it's these lights that people see because it's yeah, always the lights. Yeah. You know, everything keeps on coming back 
to these orbs of light. Um, and I kind of wonder if that isn't um, the sort of unskinned version of, of what the phenomena actually is. And it sort of reaches into your brain and says, oh, it looks like you've got a nice Bigfoot suit for me to wear. <laughs> and it plucks that out and, <laughs> and puts that on for the day. Or, or, hey, I think they'll be really freaked out if I turn into a gray alien. And, you know, that's what they were. Because, like, even with Bigfoot, you know, you'll find these stories of these lights. And it's a lot more common. It's actually one of the things that I'm really pleased about where the footprints in coming out when it did is that the community is finally starting to open up about some of this sort of stuff. And uh, my good friend, Mike Cleland always says that, you know, once you get to the ufologist after their speech, you know, if, if once you get them to the bar and get a couple of beers in them, they'll start to open up about the profound synchronicities they have. Yeah. And, and you could say that you could say the same thing about cryptozoologists and Bigfoot and these lights. They'll say, well, you know, we, we were out there looking for Bigfoot and we didn't see Bigfoot, even though this place has tons of Bigfoot activity from what we can tell, but we did see, see these lights or you know lights we saw lights and then we later saw bigfoot or even stories where bigfoot turns into a light <laughs> as, as you know as absurd as that sounds so mm. um i think that there's something at, at play with that and uh one of the things that i've played with is um is the idea that you know if if, if the lights are the true version of this phenomena you know consider the fact that the pineal gland uh, long regarded as the seat of the soul, which we have found trace amounts of DMT in, um, endogenously produced DMT. Um, so it's long been speculated that, you know, perhaps paranormal encounters are a flood of, you know, naturally created DMT into your system. And pineal gland is regulated by light because it's related to melatonin and dreaming and whatnot. So I kind of wonder yeah. if these lights, these lights aren't operating on a spectrum that triggers some sort of you know, DMT release. God, wouldn't that be wild? And, you know, you think about how people have, they have uh, similar yet different experiences and how we always, all of us will experience the world a little different. I'll see a, a color slightly different than Scott does, smell something a little different than he mm -hmm. does. Mm -hmm. And so our our kind of paranormal experience through, a, uh, you know, the, the gland and the DMT going off and it being natural could also account into why we sort of see things a little different than the next person or I don't know that's kind of stuff I just love this stuff no I mean well, so I what we take it. for granted we take for granted that like you know a lot of the things from the DSM a lot of these you know recognized medical conditions we can observe anomalous brain activity in people who have certain conditions but we re don't really know what that experience is like except through anecdotal first-hand yeah, reports right yeah, you know what i yeah. mean so we can see that something's going on that's abnormal you know quote unquote that that's deviating from the norms but we can't know what that experience is like until we interview 50 people with dissociative identity disorder and then we can sort of generate a model but the actual manifestation of that is, is primarily is things like that are primarily anecdotal I and mean, that's that's why i have a i get sort of upset when people say oh they're just anecdotes they're just stories well yeah everything's just a story your life is just a story bro you know yeah <laughs> are, are you able to recap the 1975 uh story bigfoot story out of union town uh, pennsylvania because i find that that is one of the creepiest encounters that has a little bit of everything from seeing monsters to possession to seeing lights and I, I, are you able to recap that one on the spot yeah so this is i mean this is uh, a, a very famous case um you know the sort of the grandfather of weird bigfoot stories stan gordon uh was one of the first people to bring this to everyone's attention um this was in fayette county pennsylvania uh I would be remiss if I didn't point out that uh, a lot of anomalists have have uh, noted the incidence of strange things happening in counties named Fayette, which is actually a derivative of Little Fairy, oh, interestingly yeah. enough. Um, you know, I mean, yes, it's named after General Lafayette in most cases, but his name means, you know, Little Fairy. Um, 
and this was, uh, I believe, in the fall of that year. And uh, the there were about, I think, 15 different witnesses who saw this large red orb, like the size of a barn, over a, uh, a farm. And, uh, and it settled uh, over the farm. And the, uh, the primary witness and his sons um, got out and drove up to it. And once they got there, it no longer looked like a big orange red ball, but it instead looked like this white dome with like a flat base. Uh, they had a smell similar to burning rubber, which uh, is possibly another sulfur co- connection because uh, we use uh, sulfur compounds to vulcanize rubber. So a lot of times that's we're smelling those compounds when we, we say burning rubber. Actually, that's actually a perfect example of the <laughs> tip of the nose yeah. thing that I was talking yeah. about. Um and as they approached it, uh, they noticed along the fence line, illuminated, uh, I believe, by the, the object that was in the field, um, these two, uh, I think, eight-foot-tall, seven- or eight-foot-tall creatures that were big and shaggy and hairy, and their eyes were glowing green. And they fired on them with, with tracer rounds so they could actually see, you know, see where the, the shots were going. And every time it hit them, um, it sounded like somebody throwing something into the water, like it made a splashing sound. And I, I believe that the Bigfoot were trying to bat out of the way. This is all accompanied by that baby crying sound, if memory serves. And uh, eventually they just, everything just flashed out of, out of sight. Um, as if that wasn't weird enough, uh, by the time Gordon and some of his uh, investigators arrived, um, the primary witness had a convulsion and a view of the end of the world and of like this grim reaper figure. And afterwards he experienced what, you know, for all intents and purposes can be called psi phenomena. Like he, um, he <clears throat> was able to make minor predictions. I believe he predicted a plane crash at one point, um, saw a dead relative and uh, it all culminated in the visit of two personnel who claim to be from the uh, armed forces, sort of shades of men in black, if you will, yeah. um, who showed him some pictures of, uh, of Bigfoot and, uh, and, and pictures of UFOs. And then they, uh, then they, le- they, you know, they asked to hypnotize him and they did. And then they left and said, they'd be in touch and they never were. Um, <laughs> so, <laughs> Like, what do you do with that? You know, um, exactly. And, 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 you know, a lot of Bigfooters will say, well, just, you know, people who are in the flesh and blood camp will say, well, they're crazy. And I'm like, okay, that's fine. But here's my problem with this. Uh, Number one, I think it's intellectually dishonest to say, oh, I believe this person when they say the creature crossed the road, but I draw the line when they say it disappeared in a flash of light. Right. (laughs) The other thing I was on a show with somebody who was like, we're talking about Bigfoot vanishing in the forest. And like, sometimes yes, people turn and look back and it's gone. But sometimes the thing like literally blinks out and, you know, they're looking at it and it blinks out of existence. And the the host of the show said, well, maybe the Bigfoot just jumped into a ditch or jumped behind a tree. And I said, okay, that's all fine and good. But you keep walking back the story with that kind of logic and you wind up at the person saw a bear. Like if you keep on taking away what people are saying, you you, you wind up reducing it to just misidentification or, or, you know, hoaxing or lying. So, you know, if you can operate from the standpoint that I guess I guess what I'm trying to to get at is that um I think it's a healthy approach to say I don't know if I believe all this stuff, but let's say it's all true, how could this possibly fit together in a jigsaw puzzle? And then just sort of play with it that way. Has anyone ever tried to debunk that story? Cuz I know people like to do that with the the Patterson Gimlin movie and 
and stuff. Has anyone ever tried to go after this one that you're aware I of? I don't think it has the the visibility that would uh, sort of motivate people to do it. Um, I found some inconsistencies across some of the stories because this appeared in, uh, I believe, uh, not only in Gordon's work, but in Gordon's subsequent books and in some, you know, some MUFON journals and some Flying Saucer reviews. And I've noticed some little inconsistencies here and there. Um, whether or not that is... Um, <clears throat> whether or not I haven't talked to Stan about this specifically because I want to have like a list of things to ask him and I've never really compiled one, but uh, I, I kind of wonder if that might be trying to protect witness identities. Um, Cause this is a weird story that you yeah. would not want getting out. So let's fudge the location a little bit and yep. let's fudge the names. So I, I kind of wonder if that's not what's going on, but as far as somebody actively going across that, I mean like, no, that that's not, that's not the, orthodox cryptozoologist's mo the orthodox cryptozoologist's mo is to say well these this person is crazy and then they'll turn around and you know try to force whatever including indigenous testimony into this very colonialist you know oh the primitives didn't know what they were talking about when they said that bigfoot could shapeshift by jove you know um <laughs> sort of added, sort of attitude I and mean, that's that's sort of the icky part of cryptozoology that 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 riles me up sometimes um not to say that there aren't like legit cryptids. I think that there's some very good cases, but uh, we're a very good case to be made for some of these creatures. But at the same time, like let's be a little bit more open-minded about this stuff because right. you know, we're all, we're all, if you're interested in one of these topics, you are in a glass house. So do not throw any stones. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, besides Bigfoot, do you think there's any credibility to any of our other beloved cryptid creatures being a possibility? I mean, this is sort of like, to me, it's sort of like saying, can you discredit what someone has seen in a dream or yeah. can you discredit what someone's seen in an altered state of consciousness? Like, I think if you can imagine it, you can see it because I, I personally think that's the way that the phenomena works. Um, you know, the one, the one hill that I will, that I will die on regarding cryptids <laughs> are that we will never catch dog man. <laughs> we will never, we will never kill dog man. Like if I turn my head and squint, I can say, okay, there's something in the fossil record that looks like Bigfoot. There's something in the fossil record that looks like Nessie. But, like, there's no evidence at all. Yeah. Um, outside of, you know, some quasi-mythological historical accounts. There's no, like, actual fossil evidence for a canine humanoid. Like, yeah. it just th th that evolution diverged a long time ago. And the idea that it hadn't it hasn't diverged and we just haven't found evidence for it, or the idea that it has converged since and we haven't found any evidence for it, I just can't, I can't entertain that idea. Having said that, do, do I think people have seen Dogman? Yes, but I think what they're describing is something that would be much more akin to uh, something like a, a werewolf, which in the actual treatment of, of werewolves throughout, uh, you know, medieval literature and whatnot it was generally seen as as spirit phenomena like an exteriorized soul as opposed to like a person who transformed into a werewolf so i think something like that is going on in some of those cases right I, and that's one of our beloved creatures here in michigan and i know a few people mm -hmm. that have been driving up north in the state late at night and one friend in particular was like i don't know what i saw but it was something that just stood up on its hind legs and i just I just kept driving. And... Yeah, it's something about the upper Midwest, right? Like Wisconsin right? and Michigan. They, they, you've got a dog man problem. Yeah, we do. Because um, uh, I, I went to school in Madison. so I, Okay. I, uh, yeah, so I, I, I have a special place in my heart for the upper Midwest. Um, not this time of year, but in the in, in the autumn, yeah, <laughs> in the early yeah, autumn. Yeah, no, definitely. It's been so um, cold here. Like, oh. Uh, yeah, don't miss that part. Yeah. Um, but the summers, man. Um, uh, so... 
yeah, so I, I completely believe stories like that. And the pe- thing people will shoot back with is like, well, you know, ghosts don't kill livestock and ghosts don't leave footprints in the case of something like Bigfoot. And I'm like, have you read your parapsychological research? Because like that was the first ghost hunting method was to spread talcum powder on the floor and wait for footprints to manifest. Like, I think that it, it speaks to a, a real a real false dichotomy that we set up where we think of things as purely physical or, or non-physical and things like not only that ghost hunting example, but Psy phenomena is a perfectly good example. I mean, I, I am pretty adamant about the reality of psi phenomena because there have been some great laboratory studies by people like Dean Ray yeah. and, and Rupert Sheldrake. And that's a non-physical phenomena that can inter- interact with the physical world. So if that's the case, then this idea that something that is non-physical or, or not traditionally flesh and blood in the way that we would assume it could be, the idea that that couldn't leave some sort of physical, you know, mark on the landscape or, or hurt you or, you know, kill your pet. Um, I think that's, 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 that's silly. I think that these things can, these things can be non-physical and still interact with our world. I want to talk about my favorite thing and that's food. (laughs) And you also, (laughs) you've also researched. 100% verified. (laughs) You've also researched in, in a book, the role of food and drink in encounters with humanoids and i know with like the fairy folk there's there's lore and uh, like leaving food out to appease them leaving milk out as an offering um so what were your discoveries in this realm of research yeah so i was i was absolutely fascinated with this and again it came from bigfoot because for the longest time the only thing that i was really interested in was bigfoot um but for some reason i'd always had in the back of my head this little tidbit from uh i mean it's predominantly Western European folklore, but you find it regarding the world of the dead and regarding other fairy analogs and other continents, but predominantly Western European belief that if you accepted food from the fairies, you'd be stuck with the fairies forever. And I was reading J. Robert Alley's Raincoast Sasquatch when I read about um, one of the Alaskan tribes who uh, believed that if you accepted food from the Bequus, their Bigfoot analog, you would be trapped with the Bequus forever. And I'm like, huh, that sounds like Western European fairy folklore. I said, somebody should write a book on that. And nobody did. And I was like, oh, I guess it's, <laughs> I guess I'm being called to do this. So um, yeah, it was a great career decision. Um, <laughs> but uh, um, but uh, yeah, so looking at the exchange of, of food and drink uh, evolved into my first book, A Trojan Feast. And uh, you do see this trend continuing of, food exchange in a lot of these different encounters less so with bigfoot um although there are examples um but definitely in the ufo contact experience and in fairy folklore obviously um and even in cases where people in the modern context don't receive food or drink from you know an alien for lack of a better term uh they might receive ointments or injections or something else which is basically a recontextualization of that and if nothing else the phenomena definitely seems to recontextualize itself over time you know once we had airships then we had art deco flying saucers yeah. then you know yeah. triangles and these damn tic tacs now yep. um so yeah the, the phenomena <laughs> the phenomena changes so it stands to reason that that's sort of a variation on that same old old motif and so just trying to figure out what that meant you know some cases it seemed to be uh, a means of administering amnesia sometimes it seems to have elicited some sort of um, effect in the witness but then also sort of filtering that through a lot of the mythologies that we have um, surrounding food which there are a surprising number of traditions and the way that people's lives change after they accept food in some of these encounters um 
you know, it's it, it was uh, it's it's an interesting way to look at the uh, the phenomena, and I, I think that you know, I think we've been banging our heads against the wall trying to look at you know these things from a giant perspective, like you know, what is you what is a, what is the UFO? What is Bigfoot? You know, and I think that maybe if we instead focus on some of these smaller details, we might gain some insight that we've overlooked for you know, in the case of UFOs, seventy plus years. Yeah, and, and looking at these smaller details, it, it just adds to the bigger picture. I like that, um, was it Joe Simonton and the Space Pancakes? Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. And from I think, Eagle River. Yeah, yep. and, and I love that little story where this ship lands in this old guy's backyard, and he goes out there, and they ask for some water, and then they they make some Space Pancakes and give them to him, <laughs> and they, they taste really bad. Yep, And, yep, and yep. allegedly, they tested the Space Pancake, and it was... I think it had everything a pancake normally has except for salt. It was, it was, I believe it was buckwheat flour, water, and no salt. Now yeah. this is this is a thread that that Valet picked on. He said, "Oh well, no salt." That was, you know, a common prophylactic against fairies was to you know to use salt. Salt would ward away fairies. Yeah. This is probably related to you know salt being viewed you know quasi magically because it could you know hold back decay um, on meat and such. But uh, salts had a long-standing you know. Uh, history and magical practice, but I found a little interesting tidbit that on the uh, on a, a particular island off the coast of Germany, they have a a belief in um, a belief in a race of fairies called the Onerbanski, and they help farmers in the fields by exchanging fresh water and pancakes. So I'm like, okay, that's that's a huh. little bit on the nose, isn't it? Yeah, that's yeah. perfect. And, 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 and that then that's 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 what I love is just saying, you know, I, I, I'm not gonna draw a conclusion about what these things are for the most part. I, my my what I'm working on right now is kind of Josh's theory of everything. But in most of my books, I, I never really I try not to say, oh, this is this is what you know UFOs are, this is what fairies are, this is what Bigfoot is. But I say I try to say, I don't know what this is, but it seems to share a lot of attributes with this other thing, you know, and, and maybe that might give us, you know, a new direction to go. I, the last thing I want to explore, because so often on this show, we talk about um, haunted places, ghosts, and I love that there is this connection that you found that Bigfoot and other cryptic creatures may be a possible explanation for many allegedly haunted areas. I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit on that. So it occurred to me, and this has been pointed out by a couple of cryptozoologists through the years. Um, but again, nobody really <laughs> rolled up their sleeves and yeah. dug into it. So I'm like, this is this is what I'm going to dig into. Um, that there are a lot of things that Bigfoot do that sound strikingly like poltergeist reports. Um, sometimes this is quite overt. Um, there's an example from Australia where they had Yowie sightings on their farm, and they also had showers of stones. Um that hit their house. But if you look at like, for example, the Bigfoot field researchers organizations website, they have an entire subset of cases called class B reports. And in these class B reports, they're reports where everything happens except for seeing Bigfoot. Right. So we're talking about wraps in the forest, which are called wood knocks, um, footprints, anomalous smells, anomalous voices, um, thrown stones that are often warm to the touch, uh, you know, objects being taken, stuff like that. And um, 
if you were to transplant that suite of phenomena into a home, you wouldn't even think about Bigfoot, right? You'd think right. poltergeist. Yep. <laughs> You'd 100% think poltergeist. Yep. Um, you know, especially the stone thing, which, yes, you know, stone throwing uh, is a primate behavior. Yes, people have seen Bigfoot throw stones. But if you don't see a Bigfoot do it, you can't say Bigfoot did it, right? Um, and, you know, <laughs> that, that whole idea of showers of stones is something that you see across the uh, poltergeist literature. And it gets even more peculiar when you consider the fact that, you know, the places where poltergeists generally show up are in hauntings, obviously. Um, but especially around, uh, you know, a uh, an agent of such phenomena, there's some good evidence to suggest that it's predominantly latent psi abilities that are unleashed by a person under significant stress. But you also see poltergeist phenomena in seances, in the spiritualist tradition. And uh, oddly enough, um, a staple of a lot of these seances was the manifestation of hairy hands that would grope people. And there, I found, I think, three or four different cases of people who... Um, including like Stan Gooch, who was a relatively well-known uh, parapsychological author um, from the 20th century, saw cavemen and hairy ape men manifest during seances. So it really does tend to, to me to, to blur the line of, uh, of whether or not we're dealing with poltergeist phenomena or Bigfoot when you, when you experience these things in the woods without seeing a Bigfoot. And even when you do, like, are we, that sort of opens the floodgates for, are we dealing with some sort of spirit phenomena rather than a, a large hairy hominid? Um, so I, I, I coined the term wildernessgeist for wilderness uh, spirit, mm-hmm. um, which uh, Tim actually ended up uh, recording a 40 minute, um, 40 minute record of uh, entitled wildernessgeist with a bunch of nature sounds and stuff. It's really, really cool to listen and, to. And you know, Tim but, is an amazing mm-hmm. artist too. I have to say like, cause the covers of these books are incredible. Oh yeah. And the, uh, and his little, like, you know, whenever I talk to people about getting them, I'm like, you can get the Kindle if you want to, but like, if you get the Kindle, you're missing all the little spot yeah. illustrations that he did inside the book as well. And they're just, I, I love them. Yeah. He's got a great style. He's actually, uh, he actually did the cover for my upcoming book. Uh, I have, uh, collected uh essays and i'm a contributor and and editor of other individuals who've written essays on uh fairy folklore in films and he did the cover for that which i think is up i think i think the cover's up on my website but that should be out any minute now i'm i'm assured that it'll come out any minute now so but yeah i i I love his style i I, it's fantastic um with your up-and-coming book that made me think is while we were talking and we were we were talking about food i kept thinking about the movie pan's labyrinth and that moment where have you seen that one josh yes yeah i'm, I'm a big Guillermo del toro fan absolutely and, and i'm trying to think if that moment where she's in there with the pale face mm-hmm. guy wasn't he trying to offer her food and she wasn't supposed to eat it well it's it's so, so it's sort of a variation on that he didn't offer it to her but it was like laid out in a very tempting way on yeah. the table and she and she took some that she wasn't supposed to take and, and you know that 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 food taboo it's a good example of what i was talking about with you know sort of backing the materialist physicalist reductionist into a corner and saying, look, there has to be something to this because you see that belief, the idea that if you take food from the other world, you're somehow trapped in the other world. You see that food taboo belief on literally every inhabited continent. And uh, again, a lot of, you know, folklorists will say, well, that originated in, you know, the abduction of Persephone uh, by Hades to the underworld. And he gave her a cursed pomegranate seed and she ate it and she was trapped in Hades. And I'm like, okay, that's fine. Now do North America. You know, it's like, where did that, where did that come from? Why does, you know, why does, 
why why do you find the same story in the Amazon basin? Why do you find the same story in uh, you know New Caledonia? You know why do you find that why do you find that idea? Either there was cultural contamination at a global scale in our ancient past, or we're objectively dealing with some sort of actual phenomena, or again the collective unconscious. But any one of those is just mind blowing to me. This whole show has been mind-blowing. I love yes, this. It has. I could talk to you for hours and hours and hours, and you just know your topics, and you're so like enthusiastic about it, so it's contagious. Thank you so much for spending some time with us, Josh. Oh, it's been so much fun. Yeah, I, I wish we had a little bit more time here. It's, it's just flew by. We will have to have you back. Yes, absolutely. absolutely. I'd love to have you back again. Ghostly Talk! <laughs> <laughs>